You are listening to Resurrection Indiana. To find out more about our meeting times and location, check us out on Facebook or Instagram, or visit our website at resurrectionindiana.org. We very often, especially if you are struggling have an intuitive sense that the world is not the way it is supposed to be. The CBS News show 60 Minutes once featured a filmmaker who had gone to the city that exists two miles from the Chernobyl nuclear plant in Russia that was evacuated after, after the reactor melted down in 1986 and, the, and that whole area is contaminated by radioactivity. And the whole city was evacuated. And at the time, that city housed mostly workers of that nuclear plant. And it was an example of everything that is modern. It even had an amusement park that was set to open just a few days after the accident occurred. And today, in that city, long evacuated, there sits a Ferris wheel, rusted in the midst of overgrown foliage, and it's never been used. And it's clear what that city looked like and, and what it was and what it was meant to be before everything went wrong. And yet, of course, today, to see it is to recognize that it is not the way that it's supposed to be. God is certainly present in the creation. We saw this last week, his intention for the way things were meant to be. But even here today, in our world after the fall that we're about to talk about, we still see that God has not left, that he's not absent. He continues, in fact, to be actively at work in the world. Even though the world is broken, God is still building his kingdom. And because God is building his kingdom, we can find hope in his promise. The promise that we'll see here in this passage this morning. So as we look at the fall, we look at what is, we look at what once was, and of course we also see the hope that is still present among the ruins. What is, is a kingdom that is fallen? Now, to maybe get a little bit of context, you need to go back to Genesis chapter 2. When Adam and Eve were created, they were placed in the Garden of Eden, this paradise, and when they were placed there, there was a test of their obedience. There was one tree of which they were commanded not to eat. Maybe the obvious question, especially looking back on it, is, is why? It wasn't because there was something wrong with the tree. It wasn't that the tree was inherently evil. The point was obedience. Would this man and this woman created by God to be in relationship with him, would they be faithful to him? The question is whether, given a free choice, Will human beings choose God? But again, 
It still raises the question, especially as we stand on the other side of that today, why in the midst of perfection is man given a test that risks ruining everything? Now, there's certainly an element of mystery here, for one thing. And there's certainly more that could be said if we had more time as well. To some degree, we simply have to recognize that we don't know everything. But we do know that this tree is a warning. It is a warning that tells us that human beings are not ultimate. Human beings are creatures under the word of God. History is primarily about God working out his purposes in space and in time. And human beings are not at the center. We make our greatest mistakes, actually, when we get that wrong. There was a book written, Too Big to Fail, that chronicles the story of the 2008 financial crisis. And in particular, it covers the major financial institutions that were involved, the decisions that they made. And one review of the book stated that this true story is not just a look at the banks that were supposedly too big to fail, it's a cast of bold-faced names who themselves thought that they were too big to fail. And of course, they did in their arrogance and recklessness. Their decisions caught up with them, and it ended in a worldwide recession and massive government bailouts to curb the damage that was done. We make our greatest mistakes when we think we are invincible when we think we, we are the ones at the center. And when we come to Genesis 3, we see what that rebellion looks like and where it began. Now, there are three main players in the story that I read there. There is the serpent who twists God's word. He questions whether it's really true that Adam and Eve, is it really true that you cannot eat from any tree? Of course, that's not what God said. And Eve, the woman, she adds to God's word, saying that not only can they not eat of the forbidden tree, but they cannot even so much as touch it. It's also not what God said. And, and then there is Adam, the man who does nothing. Once the fruit has been taken by Eve, he goes along with it. Sometimes I think we have the idea that Eve ate of the fruit and then Adam came along or she went and found him and offered it to him. But the text says clearly and she gave some to her husband who was with her and said and did nothing. This is not just a single choice. There is a progression of distortions and lies that lead to the false conclusion that God could not possibly have meant what he actually said. The forbidden fruit is not to be left alone. It is, in fact, they believe to be eaten. God is just, in his own greed and selfishness, withholding it from them. And so the choice is made first by Eve and then by Adam, although the order, by the time the story ends, doesn't really seem to matter. Adam is so willing that you wonder if he wouldn't have done it first himself with the right opportunity. All of our sin begins that way. We fail to believe that God is enough. 
we fail to believe that he really cares for us. And so we come up with reasons that we need to put our trust somewhere else. And then the curse comes. The man and the woman are confronted. We see the consequences of what they've done. Their relationship with God is broken, but so is the relationship with each other and even with the whole creation. To the woman, God speaks of childbearing and marriage. She will experience pain in birth. And what was a complementary relationship between herself and her husband becomes unhealthy. What's described here is the idea that the woman manipulates and tries to control. And in response, the man dominates her. Now, of course, today, not all relationships are like that. And there are certainly many, many healthy marriage relationships. And yet, the patterns that we see laid out here, deception, manipulation on the part of the woman, abusive domination on the part of the man. Very often in unhealthy and abusive marriages especially, that's exactly what we see, is that playing out of that curse. And then there's the word to the man, and we see that work will become toilsome. Weeds are introduced here. Used to tell our youth in the first church I was in, do you really think if the world was the way it was supposed to be, you would have weeds in your garden? This is not the way things are supposed to be. But not only does work become toilsome, but rest becomes fleeting. And again, we see that today in the way that we often think of work as sort of a necessary evil. We talk about working for the weekend. That what we are actually made for is recreation and rest and fun and work is sort of a necessary evil that enables you to do that. And again, not always, but certainly much more than was ever intended. The relationship with God, relationship with each other, the relationship even with the creation, all of those things that were given and were good are now corrupted. They're still there. They're broken. And our experience of them today is far less than what was intended. And of course, you see that in our everyday world today. There are all sorts of things that we experience, and we can see that this is not the way they were meant to be. And yet so often, life is just not quite right. We can see what things were supposed to look like. We have this longing for things to be different than they are. We recognize that things are not the way they're supposed to be. And in that, we still need to remember what once was. The kingdom that was intended. Now the reason that the story of creation is significant, what we looked at last week, is that we need to understand how things were intended to be and even what they once were. I mean, here's what I mean by that. Creation comes first. You know, as we're going through this Advent, we're looking at creation and then fall, 
and then redemption and restoration. But creation comes first. Very often, though, Christianity, and Christians tell the story this way, and for good reason, it begins with the story of the fall. And that makes sense, of course, because we talk about the way things are today, that we are separated from God, that we have a need to be reconciled to him, that we need to be forgiven. We begin with our need as human beings. But the first event in the biblical story is not the fall, it's the creation. And there's a few reasons that this is important. First of all, recognizing that something is wrong presupposes some idea of what is right. Creation shows us the way things were intended to be. And we remember that the creation was created, the world was created, good. And again, you remember from Genesis 1, the, the multiple times during the creation account that God saw what he had made and he, it was good. And secondly, if we're to understand how serious the fall is, how far things have gone wrong, we actually need to understand the goodness of creation and how it started. And finally, when we begin with the story of creation, it is absolutely clear that sin in the world is an intruder. Again, sometimes we can begin with sin and we can talk about that, but we also tend to excuse things. We say, well, of course, nobody's perfect. Well, of course, that's just kind of how things are. But when we go back and we begin with the creation, we recognize, no, that's not how things are. That's not how they're supposed to be. Sin is something that has come into the world that's corrupted everything that's good. That's not how it's supposed to be. And we also need to see the intended relationship from the creation. The theologian Michael Williams points out that the Bible always describes sin relationally. This is just to say that sin is always about our relationship to God, our relationship to each other, and even to the creation itself. And I mentioned in Genesis 3 the things that were corrupted at the fall, the relationship of the man and the woman, the nature of work, our need for rest. All parts of our lives are encompassed in those things. Relationships, not just marriage, but also family and friends. And work, what we do to make a living, our vocation, even the goals that we pursue that we are passionate about. And rest, not just sleep or relaxation, but also recreation. The kind of things we do to enjoy ourselves, to recharge and we need to see from the creation account the breadth and depth of everything that was created good if we are to really understand the depths of sin and the corruption that now exists in the world. One of the places that tells us that is that short passage that we looked at in Romans. When we see how far things have gone, we see that it is not just human beings they have a longing for things to be set right. It is not just about individuals and their relationship with God. It's also for the creation itself. When the Apostle Paul writes, all creation has been groaning. And just before that, he says, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. 
Christianity is not just a hope for individual souls. Christianity offers a hope that encompasses individuals, the whole of life, and the very creation itself. We need to see that Jesus and the gospel have to do with everything. Sometimes we think of our lives like TV dinners. You know, the little separated plates with the plastic taped over the top, and, and you peel it off, but everything is in a different, you got the rubber chicken and the, and the kind of gross-looking vegetables and the whole deal. And a dessert that is maybe not all that exciting by the time you're done. A lot of times we look at our lives that way. We look at our different <coughs> aspects and we assume that they have very little to do with each other. You have your family over here and you have your work over here and you have your friendships and you have your faith and you have all these different things and different places you go and different things that you do. And the assumption is that all those different parts don't really necessarily intersect. Your faith might be what you do when you go to worship or you participate in a Bible study, but you don't necessarily see those things as having much to do with the other part of parts of your lives. But the truth is that our lives aren't like TV dinners with everything sort of neatly and, and grossly, by the way, separated out. It's a little more like pot pies. Everything is mixed together and everything affects everything else. There is no religious and non-religious parts. All of life is lived in God's presence, and he cares about all of it. And his kingdom encompasses everything. That's why the story of creation is so important. And so consequently, when the fall happens, it's not just isolated dealing with individuals whose souls are now separated from God. It has to do with the corruption of everything. The fall runs through all of creation. All of creation is in need in need of redemption and restoration. And that brings us to the hope. Hope that exists in the ruins. Just like we looked at creation, we see that God the Son, who would one day come into the world, was in fact present at creation. We see him again here present in the fall. Satan will be conquered by a man, one theologian said. Just as a man destroyed the world in the beginning, another man will rebuild it. And to that end, God destroyed the alliance between man and Satan, and he replaced it with enmity. Again, drawing man to his side, God entered into a covenant with him against Satan. That enmity between man and Satan will last forever. And even though Satan would go on to do man much harm, a man would one day be born who would completely overcome Satan and rescue the world. And we see that in verse 15 of chapter 3. This is the first curse that is given. The Lord God said to the serpent, even before he announces, pronounces his curses to the woman and the man, that this is now how the world will be. This is now how your lives will be. Before he does that, he first says to the serpent, 
I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And depending on what English translation you have, the one we read uses the word bruise both times. Some translations put it this way, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. What does that mean? What it means is that the serpent will inflict painful but superficial wounds, the heel. But he himself will be dealt a fatal blow. So what happens when your head gets crushed. The promise is that things will not always be like this. And the seed of the woman here is singular. It's not talking about descendants in general, that there will be, you know, there will be a group of people or a family that will rise up. This means that God is not referring to all the descendants of the woman. He is speaking about a specific descendant of the woman. Who is he? This is the first glimpse of Jesus in the Bible. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. From the very beginning, at the very moment of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God, at the moment they chose to follow the lies of the serpent rather than the word of God, God was already moving to set things right. And his promise is clearly seen from the beginning. The Son of God doesn't just appear when we see him come into the world in the gospel accounts. Of course, we've already been saying that. The Son of God has always been present. God's plan has always been for him to come into the world. Think of what the Apostle Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians. His purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And our passage in Romans 8 again, the creation itself longs to be set free. And Paul's point is that if you belong to Jesus, that longing is fulfilled in the hope that he brings into the world. He writes of being set free, of waiting for the adoption as sons and daughters of God. And he says that your present struggle in this world doesn't compare with the glory and the hope that will one day come. And of course, that is only true because of the promise that is back in Genesis, right when the fall happened. That the son, Jesus, would come into the world, that he would live in our place, that he would die in our place, that he would undo the curse. In the curse that is spoken to the serpent, we see the unraveling of the curse itself. So the question then, of course, becomes, where are you at with Jesus? Do you know him? Is your hope in him? And do you believe that the son... The one who will set free the very world that he created. Do you believe that he can also set you free? Because if you do, there is hope in the midst of whatever struggle you are in right here, right now. And then there's this as well. At the end of Romans in chapter 16, kind of a throwaway line is, Paul is saying things like, oh, by the way, say hello to this person and that person. And 
this person gives you greetings and Timothy says hi. But there's this sort of throwaway line in there, at least it seems like that to us, where he says this. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Now, if you have just read that verse in Genesis chapter 3, he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. You need to know that the Apostle Paul, before he became a Christian, had been a Pharisee, a teacher, a teacher of the law that likely, possibly, in a very, in an age that was much more, had much more oral tradition than, than written, like we do today. People didn't walk around with books. They had a lot more memorized than we do today. <coughs> very possibly, the Apostle Paul knew most, if not all, of the Old Testament by heart. And in that seeming seemingly throwaway line at the end the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet it's pretty unlikely that Paul didn't know what he was saying and what he was referencing the son is coming he came once into the world to save it and he will come again to complete it and set all things right God is, even in the midst of this ruin, building his kingdom. And that's where we find hope today. But you can't build a kingdom without a king. Every good story needs a hero. And every good story that resonates with us does so because there's truth in it. Because it is a reflection of the one true story that's the foundation for all the other stories. God is at work in this world. He has been at work in this world from the beginning. And his plan of sending his son into the world as a sacrifice for the sin and rebellion, yours and mine, against him was always there. You are not an afterthought in God's kingdom. He loved you from the beginning. He loved you through all of history. And he loves you Still, let me pray for us.